and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Chad Engeland, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Dallas. His new book, Ostention, Word Learning and the Embodied Mind, is just out from the MIT Press. How do we learn our first words? What is it that makes the linguistic intentions of others manifest to us when our eyes follow a pointing finger to an object and associate that object with a word? Engelin addresses these and related questions in his exploration of the way in which ostention crosses the Cartesian boundary between body and mind, drawing on historical and contemporary figures and continental and analytic traditions, he defends an embodied view of ostention in which we directly perceive intentions in ostention rather than infer to them. He also gives an account of how we are able to disambiguate gestures through the joint presence of objects in a shared environment. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Chad Engeland. Are you there? I sure am. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, it's very good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, I'm very uh, excited to be talking about your new book, Ostention, uh, Word Learning and the Embodied Mind. Um, and it's a really, uh, a really fascinating exploration of the nature of, of gesture, of meaningful movement, um, embodied movements that have particular meanings. And it's, it's interesting in a lot of ways because you not only, you know, draw on uh, a, a very wide range of historical figures, you know, Wittgenstein, uh, Augustine, uh, Aristotle, and Merleau-Ponty from you know a variety of different um, uh, philosophical traditions, uh, but you also sort of draw it together at the end to give your own uh, view of ostension um, in a much more modern way that, that connects with people uh, uh, arguing for uh, embodied cognition in a more general sense. Um, so before we get into the details of the book, um, maybe you can say a word about your background as as a philosopher, how you came to philosophy, and um, how you came to write this particular book. Oh, okay, be happy to do so. Well, uh, my first exposure to philosophy happened when my older sister came back from college, and she had uh, would bring her intro to philosophy text. So I was reading some Plato and Aristotle in high school, initially very excited, and then soon like. Uh, many people first exposure to philosophy, you grow disappointed because what do you find? You find that uh, these great philosophers are disagreeing among uh, between themselves, and so you become disheartened that uh, there's anything there. But uh, I had the good fortune of going to uh, a university that required three philosophy classes, and it's been said to me before, and I think this is right, that philosophy has a very long fuse, and um, it was the third philosophy class where it finally took, and I finally saw that we, um, even if I couldn't see exactly where the answers were, I could at least see this, that philosophy is asking the right sorts of questions, the sort of questions that I had, sort of questions that I wanted to ask, their philosophy and these philosophers that we're in dialogue with were asking those questions. And so um, I declared a philosophy major, and what happens when you go down that path is the further you get along it the more difficult it is to imagine doing anything else. And so I went off to graduate school in philosophy, um, largely because I had these, these sorts of questions I, I, I needed to have answered. And one of them was uh, a kind of question that I can now put as the um, question dealing with the relationship between the scientific image that we get uh, from our high school science textbooks, college science textbooks, and the good dose of science fiction and watching television that we're all raised on, um, on the one hand, and then um, the manifest image on the other. But at the time, I wouldn't have put it that way. Instead, I would have just said, in everything I know about the world, I just don't feel like, theoretically speaking, I fit as a human person or a human people. Um, the idea, you know, that... 
uh, another way to put this um, uh, kind of related point is the picture that we're given that somehow we're brains encased in our skulls. And then the question of interacting with other people is we're interacting with other brains encased in other skulls. And there's really no home for the human person or home for uh, the community of human people uh, in such a picture. So I went off to graduate school uh, partially to wrestle with those sorts of questions. And it's just those sorts of questions that um, I couldn't quite I made some progress in graduate school. I went to a program really steeped in the history of philosophy and that had some bright spots, too, in uh, contemporary phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And so that, that gave me an angle but didn't quite really um, give me a purchase on ostension yet. Uh, it just sort of laid some of the backdrop and groundwork. And then what happened? Uh, I got my... Um, uh, first uh, full-time job. I was teaching a full slew of classes. I got married and I had a child. And one day I came home and my wife had taught my nine-month-old to point. Okay. And that was, yeah, uh, the, I, I could, do you want me to keep explaining? Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. I mean, pointing is sort of the paradigm of ostension, although you... You, you you clarify that that's not just what you mean by extension, but but go on before. Yeah, no, that was uh, uh, the the pregnant pause before the big point. So the um, the that moment, uh, and I, after I, I'm not sure exactly how much of it came to me all at once, but in a short order, I saw in the innocent simplicity of that pointing gesture something marvelous, uh, something. Uh, profound that drew upon all my studies in the history of philosophy, also drew upon the, the contrast in my teaching and philosophy of mind between a kind of Cartesian dualism uh, uh, and an Aristotelian hylomorphism. Mm-hmm. And I saw, wow, pointing is a phenomenon that in its innocent, simpl- innocent simplicity cuts right across the, the Cartesian framework in which we're trained to approach all phenomena, that on the one hand you have physical phenomena, on the other hand you have mental ones, and here pointing is something that is simultaneously a, uh, a mental and physical act, and in its sort of innocent simplicity, it blows open the, the Cartesian dichotomies, the Cartesian separations that plague contemporary philosophy of mind, that plague the contemporary imagination, and I saw then uh, along with that, um, various authors that I had encountered in the history of philosophy all of a sudden lined up behind that, where I thought of St. Augustine's account uh, in the Confessions of word learning and how he says it unfolds in reference to uh, animate movement that the child is able to pick up on. That connected up with my reading, of course, obviously, of Wittgenstein's critique of that account as giving us the essence of language, but if you read carefully, not really uh, a critique of that account as the basis for word learning. uh, uh, Wittgenstein very much appropriates from Augustine this account that the um, animate body makes our mental states available to other people uh, in such a way that no inference is needed. And two, my reading of Merleau-Ponty and uh, my study of Aristotle all kind of converged. And along with that, is I happened to come across some studies of contemporary psychology that I found fascinating. Works by uh, psychologists like Paul Bloom and Michael Tomasello were doing these fascinating studies with infants in which they showed that, you know, the Lockean conception where children learn by means of um, association of something present, some kind of concept, just does not obtain. They did one kind of um, study that I make uh, mention of in the book is they, um, the psychologists do is they'll have a caregiver outside of the room and then they put the child in a room with a novel object. So the child's playing with a novel object, an object the child hasn't seen before. And then the um, adult says from the other room, Danu, that's a Danu. And the child doesn't learn the word because the uh, language speaker is not on hand for the child to see that the language speaker is 
looking at whichever this object is. Whereas then they do studies where if the adult's in the room and says the child Danu, that's a Danu, the child will learn the word. So the the point here is that the association account of language learning that you get in somebody like John Locke cannot obtain that there's a way in which the child only comes into speech by means of attending to the language speaker. But one of the things I noticed in the psychology um, accounts of joint attention is they really couldn't get the crucial role that the body plays in making joint attention possible. Instead, they start talking about it in terms of mind reading. And my reading of Augustine and uh, even Wittgenstein and Merleau-Ponty show that there's really an alternative for this this idea of mind reading or inference where you ra- uh, ratchet up the muscle of the mind. And that is that it is more of Aristotelian fashion. It's the animate movement of the body that discloses effects. So right there uh, in the pointing gesture of my son, I kind of, uh, the basic questions that drove me to philosophy, my background in the history of philosophy and phenomenology, all sort of came uh, together. And I saw this is the opportunity that I have to uh, show the compatibility of the manifest image and the scientific image, to show that the human being is not, as it were, a brain and clay and encased in a skull, but that we are out with each other in the world, and that's how speech is possible. Well, that's that kind of, you know, is sort of a, a bit of a quick summary of, of a lot of the different themes in the book. Um, uh, so let, let's just um, go back and kind of tease out some of the, those particular themes um, in a bit more detail. Um, so you begin, you know, the, the book itself is, has you know, roughly three parts. There's a little bit of the empirical literature, which you, you, just, um, uh, you just gave us one example of, of, of work uh, with, with children learning uh, new words or new, new fake words. Um, then you go into the various historical figures. You mentioned two, Wittgenstein, or actually more than that, but um, Wittgenstein, Augustine, and others. Um, and then there's, of course, your answers to the particular questions involving embodiment and this sort of anti-Cartesian, you know, brain in a vat picture. Um, so let's let's just begin to begin from the beginning. Um, you give a definition of of ostention. I mean, it's not just pointing, um, and you also distinguish it clearly from ostensive definition. Um, and then you also limit your account to first word learning. Um, it's not even first language acquisition. It's it's just words. It's not even syntax, as as I understood it. Um, so, can you say, um, you know, explain what you mean by ostention? Um, and why you're limiting the account to just first words. Well, ostension uh, is, I know, this kind of Latinate term that makes it sound foreign and strange, but really what it names is something simple and ordinary and utterly pedestrian uh, showing. Because uh, it's really from the Latin ostendere, which means to show. But uh, it's a showing in the service of speech or in the learning to speak. And one of the things that I do is distinguish, as you said, ostensive definition from ostension. And um, there may be two main reasons to to do that. First, uh, Wittgenstein is right that ostensive definition presupposes a lexicon, a pre-existing lexicon in which you already know the, the use the word is going to have and uh, it's just a matter of providing um, a pointing gesture so that the person can look and see what it is um, that will fit within the whole um, that exists within their semantic field. So there's a way in which ostensive definition cannot, as say Bertrand Russell thinks, uh, function as the way in which infants learn their first words because you had uh, a kind of infinite regress. If all sense of definition presupposes prior words, well, then how do you get those prior words? 
clearly you have to have this more simpler phenomenon to account for how infants get their first words. But in a non-Wittgensteinian way, uh, another reason I distinguish ostensive definition from ostension is because following Augustine and following contemporary psychology of word acquisition, I maintain that it is not the case that uh, children have to be taught the meaning of their words or that these gestures have to be uh, deployed with a communicative intent. That uh, children are able to eavesdrop, learn by eavesdropping, uh, learn by simply paying attention to the actions of caregivers as they go about their everyday routines, even though those caregivers um, do not have to be, and in fact in non-Western contexts never are, um, actually trying to teach the children words. So uh, the reason I talk about ostension is because ostension is a more fundamental phenomenon than ostensive definition. Because ostension is the, the way in which um, on the base level, so not presupposing a prior lexicon of words, also not presupposing a communicative intent on the part of the language speaker, ostension is the way in which children can uh, learn language by eavesdropping, by paying attention to the language being spoken in the context of everyday routines as the caregivers go uh, about their business. Um, So it leads to a very different kind of picture in which the infant uh, comes into her own now with um, not merely as a, a passive player in a process, that is, as it were, being habituated to being a human being, but as an active uh, participant in a process that is already, as it were, uh, having the ability to exercise these abilities, but then also the ability to pick up um, and absorb um, from the linguistic environment, thanks to the bodily action of caregivers, uh, the meaning of the words they're using, and thereby break into speech. Well, um, okay, and then the focus on on uh, individual words um, as opposed to language? Uh, yes. You know, one of the criticisms that Wittgenstein makes of Augustine is that his account of word learning works for a more primitive form of language than the language we, in fact, speak. And I think he's right. He also acknowledges that Augustine's account, or this primitive form of language that Augustine talks about, is very likely at work um, in the way children learn the meaning of words. So, I'm dealing with that, the acquisition of that first primitive form of language uh, in which the, the range of word uses is kind of dimmed down. And it's a matter of making that uh, initial, getting that initial toehold on speech, uh, the semantic content, which then over time will allow the higher level uh, syntactical ordering to emerge. Uh, one of the a linguist that I follow in this is uh, Derek Bickerton, who distinguishes between proto-language and language. And proto-language, he says, is the sort of language that infants use between the ages of about one and two. Two is when you start to see syntax uh, emerging, but before then, they're more picking up um, isolated words. And uh, he mentions, too, that this is the sort of... Um, language that you see, say, trained chimps or dogs or chimpanzees likewise exhibit. And it also so happens to be the kind of language uh, that uh, speakers of pigeon, I guess, at first will, um, uh, well, sorry, not speakers of pigeon, but uh, when you throw together adult language users that don't have the same language, they end up first with a kind of proto-language before they can emerge into a full-blown kind of pigeon where they end up bringing in uh, um, developing syntactical rules. So the point simply is that if you look at Wittgenstein or Derek Bickerton, uh, you see that there's a difference between acquisition of proto-language and language. And I argue that um, somewhat different principles are involved. So there's some justification that 
for someone like Augustine to focus on the acquisition of first words and to ignore the larger uh, or other questions with, say, the acquisition of syntax. And so I focus just on the first part because it's really a different set of issues. And then when you talk about syntax, I think you have to uh, invoke other principles. And I'm not even... I don't have an account of the uh, the origin of syntax worked out in the way that I worked out an account of uh, shared semantics. Okay, fair enough. Um, so one of the one of the ways you put the central question, as you put of ostension, is um, this prelinguistic availability of intention. I mean, uh, so on your view, uh, our intentions are somehow. Embodied, we have communicative intentions, even if we're not um, deliberately deploying them uh, in a particular way. But as you put it, that you know, children will eavesdrop whether we're intending to actually express an intention. It's just somehow embodied uh, in in what we do. Um, so I was just uh, maybe you could say a bit a bit a bit more about the intentions that are embodied. Um, uh, so I, I guess I can put this in terms of um, uh, that you won't like uh, of mind reading. Um, so it's, you know, again, standard in the psychological literature that, um, that you know, children not until, you know, approximately the age four uh, don't ascribe, you know, beliefs and other uh, mental states to others. Um um, whereas you know, obviously they are uh, they are speaking long before age four. You know, and in, in fact, the the people, the the children that you are talking about in your book with with this this first word learning, you know, this is uh, nine months a year, right? So well before they're able to do what's conventionally called mind reading. Um, so, can you say a bit more about what it is, what the intentions are? that children are perceiving, eavesdropping on, uh, when, they are see- when they are observing, you know, adults, uh, you know, moving in, in certain ways while speaking, I suppose. Um, what, what are the intentions that they're reading if they don't yet have the capacity to understand uh, that other things have minds? Uh, well, just a terminological clarification. When I'm saying eavesdropping, I don't mean that they're eavesdropping on the action. They're eavesdropping on the language that's being spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as far as the action intention that is embodied in the action, that's the sort of thing that they're able to pick up on. You know, studies have shown that the newborn infant is able uh, to look into its mother's uh, eyes and to connect um, in ways that are particularly important for child development. So there's a way in which the minds are able to commune um, from the first couple of minutes outside uh, the womb, but there's a transition that occurs around nine months of development that is crucial. Uh, before then, the child is capable of dyadic interactions where the child can act- interact uh, with someone, say, play peekaboo, um, or the child can, say, play with a rattle. But what happens around nine months of age is the child gets to do something else, triadic relations, where the child, instead of interacting uh, just with another or with a thing, can pay attention to uh, someone interacting with something. And that becomes the crucial uh, ability that... uh, enables word learning to take place. Now, how does that ability come about? Well, um, this is where I, I mean, maybe uh, could take a step back. And one of the things that I enjoy doing with um, my family, um, both as a father and as a philosopher, is I enjoy going to the zoo. And of course, as a philosopher, the interesting thing about the zoo is not only to see the uh, animals, but also to see the people seeing the animals, and of course to see oneself seeing the people seeing the animals. Those are the philosophical moves. 
And one of the things, of course, is that you sit there, you stand there in front of the animals, and you want to see the animals, the ones that are sleeping, you pay no attention to. It's the ones that are moving. And among the more fascinating animals tend to be the monkeys to watch. So you stand there because they're very animate. And what do you find people doing? They spontaneously narrate the actions that they observe. Oh, look at what that monkey's doing. Uh, he's upset that the other one got the food. Oh, look, he must be hungry. That's why he's going over there and picking up the lettuce or grabbing the banana. Uh, well, actually, I've never seen a monkey get a banana at the zoo. Okay. Uh, the point is that um, we see without any problem uh, actions as purposive, as targeting, um, as being undertaken uh, with some meaning in view. So that we see that they are going towards a good and away from a bad. And, of course, we don't have to be the zoo. We don't have to be watching monkeys. This happens spontaneously um, in sort of everyday interactions with uh, other animals and with other human beings. And that is what the child is able to do. The child is able to understand action as purposive. And the child is able, and there are actually, again, some interesting psychological studies where they show that children uh, distinguish between uh, a kind of mechanical act um, and an intentional act. And they can even, they don't just uh, imitate, uh, this is pre-linguistic children, they don't just imitate what the caregiver does. But if the caregiver is trying to do an action and gives out frust- sounds of frustration like, uh, I don't know, they're um, you know, trying to put a ball through a hoop and they go, oh, because they didn't get it. The child picks up that what they're not, they're not supposed to somehow imitate the oh, but they realize that that's a sound of frustration and that the caregiver didn't achieve the aim that the caregiver gave out. And so they imitate not what the caregiver does, but they imitate what the caregiver tried to do. So that the, the point is that children see the world not in terms of brute motion, but in terms of of meaningful animate movement. And it's that meaningful animate movement as it plays out that um, allows us to commune in this pre-linguistic way. Uh, And then that's what then affords us um, the window for us to see what it is that people are attending to so that we can learn the words for the objects uh, that they are referring to. Okay, so that's, uh, yeah. So seeing animate movement, I mean, we, we see it, in a lot of places, both where it's appropriate and where it apparently is not appropriate. Um, so let's, so you know, let's let's try to you know build on to onto that basis, um, kind of the next step. Um, and I guess I'm thinking here of um, well, a well-known difference between between cats and dogs, for example, that a dog. Um, can exhibit the same sort of understanding of pointing that an infant does. They can follow your finger to that um, to that distal object um, and understand that triadic uh, relationship that you just mentioned. Um, same as an infant, um, but but cats can't do that. Um, they they lack something, and presumably. Um, uh, part of the account that's going to build on our understanding of animate motion as being animate um, uh, will also explain that difference between dogs and cats, which both can obviously uh, perceive animate motion, uh, animate movement, but only the one species um exhibits anything like what we see when we're talking about pointing as a kind of a paradigm example of of ostension. You look at that object and then you start naming the object and and so forth. Um, so how how do you you know what's what what else do you add on top of the uh, perception of animate movement uh, that would you know not not giving yet the complete account of ostension, but give us insight into that difference between the animals uh, that are able to follow a gesture of, of pointing, understanding that, um, and, and those that are not. Well, one of the 
really um, most interesting researchers on the sorts of topics uh, distinguishing human beings from other animals in terms of pointing is undoubtedly Michael Tomasello. And uh, he's done a lot of research uh, in the lab, not only on how infants learn the meaning of words, but also on chimpanzees and controlled experiments. And he points out that um, you can, and, and I'm not familiar with the literature on dogs and cats, but uh, this might be a similar point, that the, the chimpanzee, you can um, teach it to, to point, and it can, um, but he points out that the, the motive of the chimpanzee in pointing is narrower in range than even the young infant who is pointing, the human infant. Why? What's the difference? He says that the chimpanzee is always uh, points in the imperative function. Essentially, it's an extension of the gesture, I want. And of course, uh, anyone who's been around children knows that the infant is capable of the imperative gesture. Mm -hmm. But alongside that, from the very beginning, the infant is also interested in other things, not just in getting things, not just in having his or her way, but, uh, and actually one of the researchers, name is Gomez, puts this in a way that I really love. He says the infant is capable of joint contemplation. That is to say, the infant um, just gestures to the airplane and wants the caregiver to look at the airplane with the infant, not because the infant wants the airplane, but because the infant finds airplanes fascinating and wants to share the world with the caregiver, share that fascinating thing with the caregiver. And so um, you ask, I mean, how do we distinguish in pointing a human from, or, or at least different um, kinds of ways that you would be picking up on the same one animate movement. Well, one of the things that's crucial is to be able to see um, the possibility of the specifically human motivation for pointing um, as, as joint contemplation, um, where we're not necessarily looking for something to get out of it, but we just want to share the world with, with each other. And I think that that's really the, the crucial um, or one of the crucial ingredients, certainly in terms of motive, that sets aside a, a specifically human way uh, from from the sort of higher possibilities that some animals, like dogs and, and chimpanzees, are capable of. Okay, so um, uh, I, I I also have a question about machines, but we can get to that get to that a bit later. Um, uh, so some of the historical figures um, you draw on, as we mentioned, uh, Wittgenstein, uh, Merleau-Ponty, Augustine, and and Aristotle, and each of them, you know, contributes um, a piece to the overall puzzle. They get some things wrong and then other things right. Um, could you say a bit about um, what they get right? What you draw on from them? Sure. Um, I will say overall that, you know, one of the things uh, I'm doing in these opening chapters is I'm eavesdropping or listening, perhaps, uh, to a conversation that's already taking place. In a way, one, to be brought up to speed on the conversation, uh, but also um, the chapters serve to uh, motivate the uh, ana- analyses that will uh, follow. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm appropriating and motivating the analyses that follow. Now, I start with Wittgenstein. And uh, what I think I need to show with Wittgenstein is, one, that even though he criticizes Augustine, he nonetheless appropriates in the main the Augustinian essential uh, component of the ostensive account, namely that the natural uh, sort of language of the human being is inscribed into the vocabulary of human bodily acts and that that makes available to others our inward affective states. So Wittgenstein denies the separation between inner and outer in a way that's quite Augustinian and he sees that as the essential uh, ingredient. Um, At the same time, it seems like Wittgenstein is particularly aware of, say, the difference between 
the primitive form of, lang- form of language and language full-blown, so we can pick that up from him too. And his criticism of Bertrand Russell's account of word learning through ostensive definition is also compelling and and, and really, you know, we associate with Wittgenstein too the strong sense of the rejection of the private language argument. And one of the, the overarching themes of the text is to, to identify those ingredients necessary to keep language what it is, to keep it public. And Wittgenstein points to the role, really, of the body in giving us the, the pattern of action that is where meaning is fixed. So... Uh, I, I learned those sorts of things from Wittgenstein, though I do think that his the shortcoming is that he sees the child as too passive in the process, yeah. and so he doesn't have the right kind of account of disambiguation. From Augustine, I mean, Augustine gives the first most... Comp- oh, sorry, I'm going to Merleau-Ponty. Uh, Merleau-Ponty comes next, and he uh, does a wonderful job of appropriating the best insights from Husserl, and establishing this dialogue with contemporary psychology and also challenging in a fundamental way the Cartesian dichotomy between the mental and the physical. And he's the one that sees very clearly that that separation has got to go and that gestures blow it up. So there's a way in which uh, he's a fairly crucial um, element uh, or or figure in the account, but he has really no... (laughs) No explanation for how to handle the problem of disambiguation. So as far as an issue of ostension, he doesn't have an account of the Gavagai problem. Um, Then we get to Augustine, and Augustine gives the first full-blown account of word learning, and I think it's a great one. He shows um, acute awareness of the problem of disambiguation, um, and he shows, too, an awareness that it is the body and really human nature that affords the prelinguistic communion upon which language can develop. And he has this account that it's the everyday routines that allow uh, disambiguation to occur. And then I turn to Aristotle. And I really had fun writing the Aristotle chapter because Aristotle doesn't really give an account of first word learning. (laughs) So uh, what does he do? I think he gives the resources necessary for developing the kind of first word learning. And he also, uh, well, there's some creative ways in which one can find it in Aristotle when he's defending the principle of non-contradiction. He points to the fact that uh, the denier of the principle of non-contradiction is reduced to a plant-like state. Why? Why are they reduced to a plant-like state? Why not an animal state if they're denying the principle of logic? Because, um, the PNC is not just a principle of logic, but it's a principle of animate action. When we see the giraffe at the zoo go uh, towards the leaves or away from another giraffe, we understand it to be going towards a good and away from a bad. Uh, so discriminating between alternatives. And Aristotle has a whole account of nature as being these things that have this intrinsic motion principle uh, or principle of motion arrest. And he says that we can see this inward dimension of action on display in and through the action performed. So that we see action as intentional, as having an inward component. And so it's a very crucial thing that Augustine kind of relies upon, but never spells it out. Aristotle gives us some more resources for, for handling the issue. Um, okay, so um, I guess... Uh, you just mentioned about seeing this inward component, and um, you know after you kind of draw on the historical figures, um, as you mentioned in the final chapters, you kind of you pull it all together and, and defend some of the more um, the more core theses of of your view of ostension. Um, the first being this debate between whether we um, we actually perceive the intentions of others in a gesture or whether we infer uh, the inferential account um, to um, some sort of intention from from the gesture and you know obviously you you defend the first uh, the first account um, so and that's this is basically the uh, the focus of chapter eight I believe um, so can you uh, explain your position there your defense of the uh, of the perceptual account? Um, 
Uh, and yeah, just we'll start there. Okay, happy to do so. In uh, the historical chapters, Wittgenstein, Merleau-Ponty, Augustine, and Aristotle, what I found was a family resemblance uh, uh, on a basic answer to this question, which is that children break into speech because uh, our bodily action makes our affectivity available to each other. Without any kind of detour and indirect route through inference, our animate action uh, makes uh, our effective engagement with the world available to each other. And that, of course, is action, um, also what it is that we're perceiving, so that if I see that you're looking up at the sky, I'm going to look and see and see what it is that's arousing your interest. Um, and also one's uh, affective or specifically emotional state is, of course, uh, very present in, in one's bearing, one's tempo, and one's um, uh, gestures. So I found in these four authors this commitment to this surprising and absolutely non-Cartesian position that the outward makes uh, reveals the inward. It's not the case that the outward is uh, an occasion for us to infer an inward, as Bertrand Russell would have it. Instead, the outward is the revelation of the inward. So, in uh, the uh, seventh chapter, I defend that position. I defend the family resemblance position that our uh, animate movement actually makes available to others in a pre-linguistic way, in such a way that inference is not necessary, are our mental states. So let me, you know, just to um, to press the, the issue here, um, you know, one of the things, one of the questions I had I was, as I was reading was, um, uh, was about robots and, and mechanical, you know, devices of some such things. Um, so I guess the the question is, I mean, nowadays, obviously, we, we don't yet, although you can still see some online, um, you know, we don't yet have, have robots that move, um, uh, that gesture in ways that are, uh, you know, indistinguishable from a human, from a human being. Um, although we do have robots that do uh, speak or, you know, utter sounds and uh, and gesture at the same time and they're pretty fascinating uh, but they're clearly distinct from from human beings but you can imagine a uh, a robot that is you know maybe version 5.0 or something um, or or 100.0 um, you know five years 10 years 20 years from now where you can't distinguish um, would you say that in that case, um, yeah, the um, intentions of the robot, uh, the the inward is manifested uh, in the outward? Well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> you ask, I mean, um, are you suggesting that the robot does have an inward effective life? Well, I'm trying is that a to. Yeah. Question. I'm I'm trying to understand what it is that we perceive uh, in the gesture, um, uh, such that it's we're not inferring to something, uh, we're not inferring to an intention. We're actually observing it, and it seems to me that we it's not difficult to uh, imagine. I mean, it's not it's not a far fetched thought experiment to imagine um robots that are uh that have you know somehow surpassed the the uncanny valley and uh are you know indistinguishable in terms of their movements from from human beings um it seems to me that your account would uh would equally uh account for for them uh in terms of we perceive in their movement the same intentions that we perceive in ours. Well, I mean, 
Philosophy itself begins with this distinction, the distinction between seeming and being. And what I am arguing uh, is that it is the case that um, these intentions appear when we are engaging with, say, other animals or we're engaging with other human beings, that there is animate action and the appearance of intention is... uh, as it were, real appearance. But if, let's say, we're looking at a painting, and it's a painting of a person who is smiling, um, their effective, uh, the, the, you could say there's a kind of animate movement um, in the painting, we can see, or a picture, uh, we can see that they, what their effective engagement is um, somewhat within the surroundings. But we, of course, wouldn't attribute to the painting Um, actual inward feeling. So we would distinguish between how it appears and how it is. And I would say, so I'm distinguishing the phenomenological question, uh, how does something appear, from maybe the ontological question, which is then based upon how it appears, or um, separate from the question, how does it appear, what is it? And... um, and so I, I think you're right that you could have a robot that would manifestly appear to have animate movement. In fact, they've done psychological studies with young children, and um, they do a robot that doesn't have a face, and it just makes kind of different movements, and the children don't pay any attention to it. But if they do just like a, a basic little face, you know, with some lights, and it seems to be moving purposively, the child clues in and picks it up and treats it, and treats it as if it's an animate being. Right. Now, of course, it is an inanimate being. You know, there's no question, uh, or at least that's a separate question, and I, I would argue that it isn't. Um, it doesn't have inward states uh, or an effective engagement with the world. It only seems to. So that's why in uh, Chapter 8, I, I talk about not only the perceptual component, but I talk about a kind of analogy of self and other. Mm-hmm. And it's an ontological analogy rather than uh, an epistemological one. In other words, the point of it is not, uh, as it is, say, for someone like Bertrand Russell, where you, you have inward states and you can join them with your own outward behavior. You see outward behavior, and then you're projecting inward states into the other on the basis of some kind of inference, you know, where I kind of think that think of that as the ventriloquist account of other minds, where um, they have this little dummy body that you're projecting your inward life into, that's not the right picture at all. Instead, if you look um, at the authors that I've been uh, raising up and look at more specifically the phenomenon that they're inviting us to consider, we see that the other's um, mental states are transparently made available in, um, in, their out, in their behavior. And that, of course, makes sense in some sense, relative uh, to our own inward experience. So it's not the case that we're, as it were, filling in the gaps, but it's rather the case that built into the structure of experience is a very simple mirroring of self and other uh, so that we see actions performed, we understand them as actions that we too could perform. And there's an interplay of, of self and other there. Um, now, you're raising the question, what about when the other is only apparently there and isn't really there as an other? Well, that's a different sort of question uh, than the phenomenological question. I guess that's more of a ontological or, or metaphysical question. And we would then ask the question, well, what is a machine or what is a robot? And does it have an effective engagement with its environment? Or, as John Searle says, can we understand it merely as a syntactical machine uh, and not as a semantical one? Okay, well, let me, let me then ask about um, the issue of disambiguation, which, is, which was another of the, the big questions that you, that you address. Um, and you, you had mentioned before the, you know, Quine's, you know, famous example of Gaba Guy with the, you know, where the, the linguist... The field linguist goes to this, you know, tribe or uh, group of people, doesn't know anything about the language, and one of them is pointing, right? So, ostension. 
and they look, and it's what we would call a rabbit, but of course we don't know for, you know, we don't know if we should translate that gesture in terms of rabbit or rabbit parts or, you know, bits of the rabbit fusion or whatever it is. Um, And in a less fanciful manner, of course, um, and I think you use this example in the book, you know, you point at an object and and it's not clear. Are you pointing to the object? Are you pointing to its color? You pointing to some facet of it or something like that. Um, so, yeah, the problem of disambiguation of gesture um, uh, and in order to uh, get to a, a specific meaning, uh, linguistic, you know, a specific word, uh, is a critical issue. Um, and um, children are really good at it, as you, as you uh, note. So can you... Give us your your explanation of how we managed to uh, disam- disambiguate, particularly from from an early age. Well, this part of the book kind of took me by surprise because it wasn't a part of the book that I had originally thought to write. And then um, the first draft came through. It was clear that I had left open this big question and that I had to address it. And I had a wonderful time writing that chapter in the rewrite. And um, so I'm very happy to rehash it here. In fact, when I talk about this book um, with a wide swath of of philosophers, they uh, tend to, if they hear ostension, they want to hear about this chapter. So how do you handle the problem of disambiguation? And um, I think one of the key things to see is that there have to be some kind of uh, biases, some sorts of constraints uh, that are written into experience so that uh, we can naturally profile certain features of our experience over others. Otherwise, we would never be able to um, uh, make any progress to, to foreground the same items from our experience. I uh, appropriate an example from Anscombe in a different context, where imagine there was an alien um, who had a a very different way of foregrounding things. Maybe uh, they foregrounded or um, paid attention mostly to the acoustic properties of the room. Mm -hmm. Well, we would never be able to have joint presence if they were naturally attending uh, to different sorts of things. And so what I try to do in the chapters, first identify some of the constraints or some of the, the tendencies that allow us to foreground the same sorts of things. And one of them is the conspicuousness of motion, that all things being equal, we tend to pay attention to what it uh, is moving. Movement tends to catch our eye. Also, there's a way in which we tend to what is new or different as opposed to what is the same. And you can't give any ultimate justification for this. You know, there's no a priori justification that you could give for paying attention to movement of rest. I mean, I suppose you could give um, some kind of evolutionary account in which it would be helpful to pay attention mm-hmm. to movement. Uh, but um, these are somehow constraints that uh, are, are there as a matter of fact to be encountered within human nature. And then there are other sorts of constraints that identify in terms of level of generalization, um, and, and things of that nature that uh, allow us to foreground the right kinds of things and to not pay attention to more abstruse or unrelated things. And so I then build to the claim that these kinds of biases are inscribed into our human nature as inclinations. And so that what allows us these cultural animals that we are, we pick up these conventional languages, but what allows us the window to pick up these conventional languages are, are the fact, is the fact that thanks to our bodies and thanks to our natures, uh, we profile the same, uh, well, in a similar sort of way so that we can uh, foreground the same sorts of things. So what I end up doing, um, I, I guess, in relation to the quine problem, is first I argue that one of the problems that he has is that he restricts experience to stimulus. And I follow Davidson's critique of quine that when it comes to word learning, um, 
stimulus is not the appropriate term that we're that you have to to point to the public object um, the the object that's shared which is the distal item the item in the world that's what's relevant for word learning not the the private stimulus and so i think part of quine's problem is he has a uh, not a robust enough account of perception in which what we're really sharing uh, is uh is a world that uh, has built-in structure that we can pay attention to uh, together. So that's one of the things that I do kind of in Aristotelian vein is I try to, to bring life back to joint perception and to find some intelligibility native to the world that we can uh, share together. And then the second thing I do is I uh, point to these inclinations that I was just talking about and see those as, as features of our joint human nature. And I, I like the word inclination because it suggests some sort of flexibility um, because I think you need to have a flexible principle. Um, and, uh, well, that's it. I guess that's it. Maybe that was the one time where an editing would be helpful. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's... Um, well, let me just let me just ask. We're, we're getting close to the end. Um, and you've mentioned... So I just want to... Uh, you mentioned a couple of joint, you know, X, you know, joint contemplation, joint joint presence comes up quite a bit um, in the book. Can you can you say something uh, more about joint presence uh, specifically? So one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to show a way out of the Cartesian separation of the mental and the physical, right? And I think the language of joint attention is too mental because one of the things is the problem is you really want to know, okay, the child learns the word milk. How? Well, according to joint attention, somehow the child comes to share in the inward mental milkness that the other person is entertaining. Well, that's not quite what's going on. Instead, it's thanks to the, the, the distal milk, the milk in the world, that the child's able to pick up on the meaning of that word. And so how is there a better way to think about what's going on? And I suggest joint presence is. Why? Well, presence suggests point of view, but it also suggests something of the body, that it's present to the body, and it's present thanks to the animate movement of the body. So the whole animate mind is at work in joint presence in a way that it isn't in joint attention. It sounds too Cartesian that it's a matter of coordinating purely mental events, when really what we're trying to do is coordinate our attentions that are inscribed into our bodies relative to some bodily thing in our shared world. And so I think joint presence is just a a more natural, less problem-plagued way of talking about the phenomenon that, that we're dealing with. Okay, that's that was that was very helpful. Um, well, we we are running out of time, so um, I like to end with a with a final question about uh, your future projects. Are you um, continuing uh, another project along this vein, or are you moving to something else? What's what's next for you? Well, um, I still I, I've got two projects coming out of the book. One is. The book made me even more interested in the problem of other minds and to see that I think one of the key things to see is that uh, the epistemological problem of other minds is the least interesting problem of other minds, but there are, in fact, other problems of other minds. There's a conceptual problem of other minds that someone like Thomas Nagel identifies, and then there are also the phenomenological problem of other minds that's more current in the continental tradition. And I think that bringing those uh, traditions together, somewhat along the lines that I've already done in the book, but develop that more is a a project I would like to continue with. And the other thing that I would like to do is to bring out even more of the connection between life and language. (laughs) I did that on the level of semantics here. And one, I think, partially, as our conversation showed, there's more work to be done on that. But I also think it becomes even more interesting when you look at more complex uh, structures of language, not only syntax, but also when you think about text and conversation and narrativity, language, the connection between language and life gets much more interesting, much more complex and, and much richer for 
clarifying those ultimate philosophical questions that we want to clarify, uh, you know, that say the beginning of the Phaedrus. Phaedrus, where have you been and where are you going? Those, those basic questions um, <laughs> about the, uh, the human sojourner. Well, that's, that's fascinating, and I, I wish you luck with, uh, with both of those projects. Um, and I certainly, um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be looking forward to, to seeing some of, some of that come out. Um, but we are, for now, we are, we are finished. And uh, so I'd like to thank you for, um, for your time in talking with, with us. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was delightful. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Chad Engeland, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Dallas. We've been talking about his new book, Ostention, Word Learning and the Embodied Mind, which is just out from MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.